Genesis 17, 5. The word says, thus says the Lord. Get a load of this. Cursed is the man, this is Geber, the warrior man, who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. So here we see a warrior man that is cursed, The warrior man who trusts in man is a cursed man because he first, he trusts in man. He makes his own flesh, his strength, his gifts, his talents, his abilities. His heart departs from the Lord. Now that word Lord is not Elohim. It's not the general name for God, but it's Lord, it's Yahweh or Jehovah, which is Savior, Redeemer, Deliverer, Savior, our Lord and Savior. You see, I can put confidence in my flesh. You know, we build bridges and we build skyscrapers, but when we're talking about the warrior man in spiritual things, if our reliance isn't upon the Lord, we will fail every single time. I see that in the universities today, and I work with a lot of Pepperdine students, and it's absolutely amazing what I see happening, not just with students, but with staff, people that know the scriptures. They know the scriptures, but they've lost the power of God, and they've gained the power of intellect. It is as if the academy and as if the the library has replaced the prayer closets of our leaders in Christianity today. We don't need more knowledge. We need more power. And power comes from a man that is reliant upon the Lord, and he sees the Lord as the deliverer, the Savior, and the Redeemer. You see, the warrior man who trusts in man, he will be cursed with living like a shrub in the desert. He may be head knowledge, but his life will be dry. There's a law in the Bible, in the New Testament, that is said by Paul. Are you ready for this? It's a law. I'm going to say it like this. Knowledge puffs up. It's a law. That's what it says. It doesn't say sometimes, maybe. Knowledge puffs up, but can anyone finish it? Love edifies. Faith and knowledge are compatible, provided that faith comes first. Because faith causes you to be a warrior man in a place where your power comes from God and God alone. You see, this man will be cursed with not being able to see when good comes. That's what he says in verse 6, when good comes. It's amazing, as it says in the book of Isaiah 117, that they will call good evil and evil good. Even in the Christian church today, amongst our youth, the greatest law of the land is not the Bible. Okay, you want to throw anything at me? Please do. I'm ready to contend with it. The greatest law amongst, I would say, I'm going to offend some people, but I don't mean to. I love them because I work with them. But millennials today is tolerance. It's the greatest law in the land. You can be anything but a fundamental Christian that believes in the literal interpretation of the scriptures. And I say, hey, man, I'm into tolerance too. I love tolerance. Tolerance is great. I got tolerance all day long. But tolerance has boundaries. 
It has boundaries. For example, if I'm living in the dorm and my buddy comes home and he needs to study all night for a test, I will put earplugs in and I will put a, a, a sheet over my eyes and I will sleep like a baby because I'm being tolerant. I had to do it last night with Pastor Ken and Pastor Rob. I mean, they were having a, a, a chainsaw. I'm kidding. They're actually wonderful. He's looking at me like, I'll get you later. I'm leaving right after this, by the way. But if that same roommate comes home drunk every night, tolerance has its boundaries. Tolerance has its limits. And so if I, as a person, has tolerance toward a generation for them to do and define whatever they want to do, I'm not loving them because the idea of tolerance is love and compassion, is it not? I'm not loving them. I'm abandoning them to their flesh and their self and the devil. And we're going to be accountable for that someday. If we don't stand in the gap like Pastor Ken was talking about, we'll be accountable. Men are men, women are women, and we have a responsibility to herald it as such. This man, who is the cursed man, he will live in isolation, a salt land which is not inhabited. But on the flip side, let's go to verse 7. This is the man who trusts in the Lord. This man will be blessed. He says in 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The same word, geber. A warrior man, one that puts his trust in man. Did you know that the very middle verse of the Bible is that it's better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your confidence in man? Psalm 118, verse 8. So here we have a man that trusts in the Lord, a geber that trusts. Trust in the Lord, I like to say it like this. Trust is built by 90% consistency. When I go to the Lord 90% of the time, that means out of 100 days of the year, I go at least 90. If I've also learned that you know people trust me if I'm consistent 90% of the time. When I was given uh, Calvary Chapel Malibu a little bit early, I remember Pastor Don McClure saying that, Brian, don't, you don't miss more than six Sundays a year, and don't ever miss Easter or Christmas. Well, six Sundays a year, you do the math, it's 88%. It's real close to 90 People trust you when you show up 90% of the time. Let that sink in you for a second. Imagine your life and think, do I show up to church 90% of the time? Do I show up to my quiet time, my my prayer life 90% of the time? Do I show up for my wife and my kids 90% of the time? What do I not show up for in my life 90% of the time? And where where that does not hit 90, there's a lack of trust. I need to rebuild that trust in that area. When I go to the Lord 90% of the time, friend, he speaks to me. He communicates to me. He gives me wisdom and guidance of how to walk through. It also says that this warrior man, he hopes in the Lord. Now, hope is a weird word to define, so I came up with my own definition, if you'll grant this. Hope is the restoration of glory. Can I say it like that? When you hope for something, you're hoping for the best, are you not? And when you're hoping for heaven, your heart is knit to heaven, you're hoping for the restoration of this fallen life, this fallen nature that you have. So we get a first glimpse of that hope when we get saved, and then we have the ultimate hope when this decaying flesh is made perfect and we're leaping like we were always meant to leap before the fall in the garden. 
I'm going to move a little quicker through here. So the warrior man who trusts in the Lord, he will be blessed with being like a tree planted by the waters. He will spread out his roots by the river. His leaves will be green. And I love this. He will never cease yielding fruit. That is a beautiful statement. And did you know that a fruit tree never feeds on its own fruit? A fruit tree is for the passerby. The fruit of your life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control isn't for you. It's for the person that's coming along in your life that needs to partake of that fruit. And so when your, when your roots are not planted by the rivers of water, you can't give from an empty well. You have nothing to give society. You have nothing to give people. In other words, your warrior wings have been clipped. And you're just sitting on the, you're sitting on the sideline. And so we need to get back into the game, understanding that it always begins and the ends with abiding in the Lord, living in the Lord. You see, the warrior man who trusts in the Lord will be blessed with always yielding fruit. And he says at the end there, he will have nor fear nor anxiety. As Pastor Dave quoted, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of joy and of a sound mind. Fears of the devil, fear paralyzes. The anxiety and the fear that grips a man's heart or mind, that's not of the Lord. The only fear that's the healthy fear is the fear of the Lord. That's it, because that is the beginning of wisdom. And that fear of the Lord is not a fear and trembling. It's a fear of reverence that he's the most high God, and he has all power in the heaven and earth and throughout all the universe to move mountains for your sake so that you can walk in absolute victory as the warrior man. Let's move on. The inspired man is a priest. The inspired man is a priest by first standing at the intersection and secondly standing in intercession. Intersection and intercession. So Exodus 22.30 says, So this is the Lord speaking. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. A very sad clause at the end. But I found no one. You see, as a priest, we're called to stand in the intersection between heaven and earth. The most important day of the week is Sunday morning. And, you know, maybe your pastor says the same message every Sunday. But you know what? If all you hear is the same message every single Sunday, you never heard the message to begin with. Because the message is always for the new person. The most important person in the room is the person that's new or struggling or needs to hear the gospel or they've heard it for the first time. And if you really heard the gospel, I mean heard it with understanding, then you're going to take what that was what was said from the pulpit and you're going to find that person that has need and is hurting and you're going to bridge that message to that man or woman's life. You're not going there just to be fed. You're going there to get nourishment, to give back, to pour into. That's what a priest does. He stands in the intersection between heaven and earth, and the way God designed it was through the church, the ecclesia. Now, let me unpack this a little bit more. The Apostle Paul, he does a very interesting thing, especially Luke in the book of Acts. You see this parallel between the church of, of, of well, reference to spiritual community of synagogue and church. Familiar with synagogue, church. In the Greek, it's synagogue, and in the Greek, uh, for church, it's ecclesia. Well, because we have such a high emphasis in Christianity about being separate from the world, I'm in the world and not of the world, 
you've heard it, you know, sort of translated throughout the ages that I'm, the church is separate from the world. It's separate from the world. You've heard that, right? That's really not what it means. If you go back and you look at the, at the lexicons and you dig in, this word ecclesia was the called out ones, but it was a secular term because the Koine Greek was a secular language. And the idea in the Greco-Roman culture is that you were called out of the synagogue, the synagogue, into the ecclesia, the public arena for the point of deliberation. Is that the first time anybody's ever heard that? That is gospel truth. You look it up, you look at ecclesia, and you will see that it's a secular term designed for you and I to participate in the public square for the point of deliberation. Why do you think the Apostle Paul, he would first go to the synagogue, not the ecclesia, and then he would go into the public square and he would speak about the church? Where our faith is not called to be hidden away somewhere, we're called to transform society. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're called to stand in the gap for our families, for our churches, and for our communities. That's the intersection. But secondly, the inspired man is a priest by standing in intercession. So first and foremost, Jesus Christ is interceding for our souls. In Hebrews 7.25, it says, Christ is able to save those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When I was, given, when I was uh, in the candidacy for the church at Calvary Chapel, Malibu, uh, the board of elders, they, said, they asked me, they said, so what do you feel is your, oh, oh, no, sorry, what do you believe, we said, strike the word feel from the tape, what do you believe is the primary role of a pastor? No, my head's filled and swimming with thoughts and ideas, but the Lord just spoke to me. Brian, your primary role as a pastor is to intercede on behalf of the people because that's exactly what Christ is doing for you right now. And if we're called as to be created in the image of God, then we do what he does, and we receive power as we flow that power out to other people. When we're interceding on behalf of other people, the Spirit of God flows through us, and image-making is happening in his likeness, in his form. Your primary purpose, whether you're a pastor or not, is to intercede on behalf of your people, your neighbors, your friends, your families, all those you come into contact with. You're an intercessor because Christ is an intercessor, and that's exactly what he's doing right now. As priests, we also intercede for the souls of others. I love this passage in Exodus 32. So Moses goes up on the, on the mount, and he's getting the Ten Commandments, and the world's going to be a better place. He comes down, and what happens? They went south. They built gods of gold. They built this golden calf, and, and it was just a mess. And in Exodus 32, verse 30, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin. So now I will go back up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And then Moses returned to the Lord and said, These people have committed a great sin and have made themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin... But if not, I pray, blot me out of the book you have written. You see, an intercessor is more than just somebody that's praying for the people. An intercessor is one who's willing to lay down their life for the people. Because when you're interceding for people, you have to not only give them the word of encouragement, but also the word of rebuke. 
we bear fruit in accordance to repentance. And when Jesus went, everybody wants to say, well, Jesus went in there and turned over the tables, and he fashioned a cord of whips, and he whipped them, and he, you know, he whipped the animals out there, and he was radical. That's the Jesus I like. Well, that's the Jesus I like too. But you know what I like more about that story? Is that symbolically speaking, the very cords that he wove together were the same cords, metaphorically speaking, that would hold his hands to the cross. In other words, he was, wearing, he was willing to bear their burdens while speaking the hard word into their life. An intercessor is more than just a person that's from a distance praying. They're the person that's willing to go into the depths with them and bear them and bring them up and out of it until God is formed in them. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul where he says, Like a nurse cherishes her children, so I travail in pain again until Christ be formed in you. And finally, as priests, we intercede for unity in the body. Unity. John 17, the final prayer of Jesus before he, is, he goes to the cross, he says, I pray for them. That means us. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are thine. Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. The world may believe that you have sent me. I've been praying for unity in our area as an umbrella in Malibu for four years. And by God's amazing grace, we're partnering with the Vineyard this Sunday to do service. They came out to our church a couple weeks back, and now we're going out to their church. And for Good Friday, we did a, a service where Skyline and us and uh, Calvary Chapel Malibu and, and uh, the vineyard in Malibu, all three of us churches got together. And so we've been praying for unity. I believe God's glorified when we bring unity. At the emphasis of truth, of course, but a lot of that stuff we can, we can get along with. We don't need to worry about that. You know, this idea of a priest is, you know, somehow the culture has got this picture that a priest is this scrawny little guy that couldn't do anything else but study. And I don't see like that as a priest at all. I mean, I, when I think of a priest, I think of a Samuel, you know. I think of a David. I think of a man that's strong, that's firm, that's steady, that's consistent. That's what a priest really is. There's a great illustration in, um, anybody ever see American Sniper? It's rated R. What were you guys thinking? (laughs) It's still a good movie. There's a few weaknesses I have, you know. But great line in there. Most of you probably remember this, but the father is talking to the two young boys, and and one of the the younger boy got in a fight, and then the older boy came along, and, and the father's trying to discern, so were you guys bullying this other kid? And the older brother said, no, dad, no, sir. He said, no, sir, not at all. He said, what happened? He said, well, so-and-so was, was, was beaten on my little brother, and I came in. So the father says, well, did you finish it? He said, yes, sir, I finished it. And then he goes on to this illustration. He says, there's three types of people in this world. There are wolves. He was trying to discern if his boys were being wolves by being bullies. He figured they weren't. Then there's sheep, and then there's sheepdogs. And in this home, we only raise sheepdogs. Those that are designed to lead, they're a rare breed. And people that would, take a, that would take time out from the comforts of their life to come all the way up here on this mountaintop and hear other men snoring, sheepdogs, equipped, being prepared for what God has for you. Amen? All right, well, I'm going to keep moving quick. So the inspired man is finally, he's a king. The inspired man is kingly because he has order on the 
inside world. And when you have order on the inside world, you're able to bring order onto the outside world. So the king needs rule over his inside world, and this requires humility. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it wherever it will go. You see, this requires surrendering to the Lord, a yielding as a submission. You know, humility is strength under control. You guys remember the movie The Black Stallion? This beautiful stallion, beautiful horse, but a stallion is useless until it's broken and you can put a bit in its mouth and a saddle on its back and can be ridden. Then that stallion is used for the master's use and will bring glory to its master. You and I need to be broken on a continuous basis, not just once, but every day I surrender myself to you today, Lord. That requires great humility. That requires self-constraint. You need to restrain yourself from applying your own will. Proverbs 25 says, Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. But Psalm 96.10 says, So say this among the heathen, that the Lord reigns. The world also shall be established, that it shall not be moved. He shall judge the people righteously. When the Lord reigns in your life, are you ready for this? When you look through the Psalms, you'll see a pattern that where the Lord reigns, there's holiness. Where the Lord reigns, there's holiness. Holiness requires humility because there's nobody in this room that could ever be holy in their own strength, their own gifts, their own talents, their own abilities. Holiness comes from the Lord, which requires a submission to him, his spirit, and his will. We also see that the king, inside world, he needs a deep and unwavering love for truth. One of my favorite passages of scripture is when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate. And this Pontius doesn't know what to do. He's looking at the guy going, he's innocent. He's obviously not a problem. But if I let him go, these Jews are going to turn Jerusalem over and Caesar's going to have my head. What do I do? And so Pilate says to Jesus in John 18, he says, Are you a king then? Jesus answers, It is as you say, I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world. Are you ready for this? For this cause I came into the world to bear witness. That word witness in the Greek is maturios. It means martyr. To bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of truth hears my voice. Jesus came as a king to bear witness, to give his life for the truth. And it's amazing how so many of our churches today want to bridge truth or compromise truth. And what we end up doing is adjusting our churches to disciple an ungenerate believer. They've never been born again. They may have uh, intellectual assent towards God or whatever it is, but they've never been born again in the Spirit. In other words, they can't hear His voice. We're trying to lead a community of people in the West. That it's about buildings, friend. It's about baptisms. It's about budgets. But the idea of souls, just get them in the building, and then we'll get them saved. And yet the reality of it is, is that what you win a person through is what you win them to. That father that sits at the head of the table, he's the one that sets the tenor for the rest of the family. 
If you want this message, you'll hear this voice, which is the voice of truth that comes from God. I can see it as clear as the day is long, that when I was a pursuer of truth through all my New Age antics and Buddhism, Hinduism, New Ageism, all that garbage, I always had a love for the words of Jesus. I was drawn to his voice. And then there came a time when I was willing to give up my life to follow him. And within a year, I found Calvary Chapel, Thousand Oaks, Pastor Rob, and so many of you that I I watched me grow in the Lord. And I would, I wouldn't, it was the best decision I ever made was give my heart to the Lord. Next was giving my, my heart to my wife. And, and when everything's said and done, friend, it's about truth. It is about truth. And when we walk in this culture today, with especially in the intellectual arenas, truth has been compromised. You want to know why? Because men have been seduced by the philosophies of men in the culture. When I went to seminary years ago, and I was in a world-class seminary, I had some of the top scholars, people came out from all over Europe, they wanted to teach in these schools, etc., etc., and I found that I had more leverage in arguing a fact in the classroom by quoting some dead white guy like Karl Barth or Jurgen Moltmann or, 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 or some other person that was a respected theologian in that arena than actually the scriptures. And I'm reminded of what Jesus says. You know not the scriptures, nor the power of God. You've lost the focus. You no longer have the power to be a king or a priest or a warrior in this culture. The only thing that exalts truth is a heart that's sold out for God as a warrior, as a priest, as a king. And if we have not truth, then what do we have? We are here for truth and truth alone. And I don't know about you, but when I got saved, I was so tired of the lies of Hollywood, of what love was, of how to be a man. And I know now what it is to be a man. A man is a man that dresses up and suits up and shoots his buddy with a BB gun because it makes him tougher. Amen? Let's move down one more. The king needs a deep and abiding, godly wisdom. Psalm 2.10 says, Be wise, all of you kings. Be instructed, all of you judges of the earth. You see, a deep love for the Lord is where it begins. But something that won my heart to my wife instantly, I sensed it immediately. And I met my wife actually on a trip to Israel. And I could sense it immediately that she didn't just have a love for the Lord. You know what she had that was special? It was extraordinary. She had a fear of the Lord. I could sense it in her. She didn't tread upon grace. She had a love for the Lord coupled with a fear of the Lord. And the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. Therefore, you can draw the conclusion that without a fear of the Lord, you may have a lot of natural wisdom, but the natural wisdom doesn't doesn't see beyond the time-space continuum. It can't see the destruction of generations that give themselves over to ideologies that are not biblical. But those that are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit can see the end result, can see the end game, because they're inspired as prophets, priests, kings, and warriors. You see, it's a deep love for the Lord. It's a healthy fear of the Lord. It's a mature discernment of what is the Lord's wisdom and what is man. 1 Corinthians one twenty one, the Apostle Paul says, This is in the wisdom of God, but the world through their wisdom 
did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And what is that message? That Jesus Christ came to earth to die upon a cross for you and I, to set us free from the bondage of sin and of death, to put our feet on a straight and narrow path, to give us vision to follow truth all the days of our life, to give us conviction and power to stand in the gap for those that are not quite sheepdogs and are not, and, and, and not quite wolves, but they're sheep and they need to stand. We need to stand. We need to train And so it requires the king to first have the inside world brought under the submission of the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the inspired man is kingly. It's my last point because he brings order to the outside world. The outside world. And how is the outside world established? Well, listen to what the book of Proverbs says. It is abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. A wise king scatters the wicked and brings the wheel over them. A king that sits in the throne of judgment scatters away all evil with his eyes. Righteousness. Now, I'm going to mention Donald Trump here for a second. He's an interesting character. I mean, he is really something, isn't he? Pastor Rob gave a great analogy on him. But there's something about him that from the very beginning, and I'm sure many of you could sense it as well, there was a discernment, there was a discernment with instinct towards what was right and wrong. His moral life was a mess. We get that. We don't need to go there. But the policies come far before the person. The policies, the principles are what we stand on. And I don't care if the man was an orangutan. My vote was for this man because of the policies and the principles and what I felt was an inherent instinct. And what I believe, there's a Daniel in his court by the name of Mike Pence that will, that will continue to bring him. I, I was praying this this morning. I was going, Lord, why don't you put it on Mike Pence's heart to take Trump through the book of Proverbs. Every day, just go through a proverb. What it means to be a king. Wouldn't that be incredible? And I, I, this, for sake of time, and uh, am I running over time? I think I'm, I'm always running over time. Uh, but this is so important. I need you to get this. This is really important. So please flip your Bible to Deuteronomy 28. I'm not going to give any commentary on it. I'm just going to read it. You see, When we are walking in righteousness, when we are walking as a warrior, as a priest and a king, God blesses the nations, according to Deuteronomy 28. He blesses the nations through us as the head. I'm going to read. He lists eight blessings here. Now it came to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all nations of the earth. That is, and that is our country, but it could be on the decline. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And look at this. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, and the increase of the herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in and when you go out, when, when, when you... And, 
Uh, the Lord will cause your enemies, verse 7, who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you and your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand to do, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will grant land of which the Lord swear to your fathers to give them. The Lord will open to you as good treasure, the heavens, to give rain to your land in its season, to bless all the work of your hand. You shall not lend to many nations. Did you get that? You shall not lend to nations. But you shall not borrow from the nations, and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not be beneath. If you heed the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and you are careful to observe, so you shall not turn aside from any of the words which I command to you this day to the right hand or the left. Do not go after other gods, the gods of intellect, the gods of education, the gods of Wall Street, the gods of money, the gods of prosperity, the gods of pleasure, position, power, whatever it may be, you keep your eyes focused on the God of the Bible, Yahweh, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we will be the head, not the tail. We will not borrow, we will lend. And it's a barometer of where we are today on the cusp with however many trillion it adds up today in debt. So let me finish with just this quick illustration. As, you, as I said, I got married a couple years ago. We got a new baby on our way. When we moved into our place, we live in a little mobile home in, in Malibu. You know what the first thing we did? The first thing we did to that home is we cleansed it as a warrior. And so my wife's family has a rich heritage, Assemblies of God. And so they came out, and we fasted for half a day. And then the rest of the day, we prayed over it. And when my mother-in-law prays, I mean, she takes the holy oil, and she anoints everything. Everything has oil. For months and months, I would grab the door handle. There'd be oil on it. There'd be oil dripping from the, from the windows. Everywhere you go, there's oil. But she would pray, and she would pray, and we prayed. We prayed to cleanse that house as a solid warrior of any unclean spirits that may have been there before. We cleansed that house as a good, solid warrior. And then as a priest, we begin to decorate that house. As the Bible says, decorate the doorpost of your heart with the word of the Lord. So we decorate our home with things, with scriptures, with mementos, things that represent our faith in Christ. And after we decorate that house, you know what we do next? We protect that house. You see, the priest is not some passive guy. He's in the public square protecting the faith. The Bible says that my people perish for a lack of knowledge. Who's the dispenser of knowledge? The priest. That's you and I to take time to come out and do a retreat on this mountaintop. We cleanse the home. We decorate the home. We protect the home. No matter what, we have a 24-hour guard at our home always, and that's the Holy Spirit. We welcome him into our home to war off any enemies. And then the fourth one, as a king, we enjoy the home. I enjoy my home. I don't ever want to leave. 
If any of my congregants, they don't know where I am, I'm probably sitting there with my, my nice fluffy rug and I'm reading a book or, or I just love my home. And then my wife comes home, we enjoy, we make enchiladas, mole enchiladas. Any fans of mole enchiladas? We love mole. I mean, we just, we enjoy our home. And when I was sharing this illustration with my wife recently, she said, you need a fifth one on there. It's not just to cleanse. It's not just to decorate. It's not just to protect. It's not just to enjoy. But it's also to invite. We welcome people into our home. And if as a king, my inside world is not pure, I won't welcome you into my heart and bear you up as a warrior and as a priest. If my physical home is not clean, I won't invite you into my home. You won't sense the Lord there. And so you and I, as warriors, as priests, as kings, we have a high calling to stand in the gap for others, but it begins with us as warriors, as warrior men inspired by God to bring forth truth and righteousness to establish a kingdom this side of heaven.